I'm Mike Stallman, and you are listening to Gospel Tangents. It's the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to introduce Mike Stallman. He's not LDS, but he is a member of the Restoration. We're going to learn more about him and his conversion to one of the Restoration branches. And uh, Mike is definitely uh, a puzzle solver. So we'll learn more about this. He's kind of the Scotty, the chief engineer in rebuilding the Phoenicia ship. So you don't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have one of the best engineers on the Phoenicia ship. Um, could you go ahead and tell us who you are and where you're from? Uh, my name is Mike Stallman. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. I lived there for 33 years, and then I gathered to the center place in Independence, where I've lived for the last 33 years. Oh, so you've been both places. So are you, uh, I'm trying to find out, is your background LES or Community of Christ? Or it sounds like you've been in both of the major cities there. Well, uh, I was actually raised Catholic. Okay. Uh, and uh, I had a, my conversion spirit experience where uh, I met our Lord and Savior when I was 20 years old. Okay. And uh, at which point I joined what was then known as the RLDS. And uh, I have an absolutely unshakable belief and faith in the Book of Mormon. And uh, the RLDS, for all intents and purposes, no longer exists. And I am a member of what is known as a independent restoration branch, who are former members of RLDS who did not want to go along with the direction that the now Community of Christ decided to go. Okay. Um, I don't know if you know Patrick McKay. Do you know Patrick? Yes, I do. Patrick, I just interviewed him. Um, he's going to be on here next week. Um, he's an apostle with the JCRB. Would you be considered part of the Joint Conference of Restoration Branches? No. Actu actually, uh, the groups that uh, uh, that are part of the, the, the movement that I'm in are simply uh, congregations that were uh, ruled out of order by the RLDS and basically kicked out of their buildings. So those groups bought their own buildings and have remained as independent congregations until now. The JCRB, some of those congregations banded together to form the JCRB, but uh, quite a few didn't. So I'm, uh, I, I frequent the ones that didn't. Okay. <laughs> Though I've, I've got nothing, uh, n nothing, uh, against them, and I, I'll, I'll attend their services, and I'm friends with many of them. There's no animosity. It's just that uh, scripturally, I didn't feel I could go that way. Okay. So, do, does your branch have a specific name? Uh, there, there's several that my wife and I attend. The one we've been going to lately is uh, known as the South Chrysler Restoration Branch, because their their church had originally been on South Chrysler Street in Independence. But uh, their new bit once they were kicked out and had to get a new building, it's now on Salisbury Street. So it's a little confusing, the name South Chrysler, but you're not on Chrysler Street. Okay. <laughs> I drove by there um, a few years ago. I wish I could remember that guy's name. I'll have to show you a picture later and see if you know him. But uh, they were working on the fence. I, I always thought it was Chrysler Street, but you can say Chrysler, huh? <laughs> Correct. It's Chris it Chrysler. Like, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Anyway, that's 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 interesting. 
All right. So, uh, so how did you get involved with the Phoenicia? Well, uh, I was uh, following Wayne May for years. I used to get his magazine, and I attended uh, uh, several of his conferences, uh, specifically one in Nauvoo. And uh, so I got to know Wayne personally and became uh, friends with him. And uh, when he announced that uh, uh, he had located uh, what he believed was a location of the temple in Zarahemla, just right across the river from Nauvoo, uh, I said I needed to go up and check it out. Uh, Wayne was wanting to do uh, a dig at the site. They had done previous digs, but they had done some ground-penetrating radar, and they located what they thought were uh, anomalies in the ground. So they wanted to dig down and, and, and excavate those. So I... I had uh, uh, I had a Bobcat 331 mini excavator, so I volunteered to bring it up and uh, do the digging for him. And uh, it, <clears throat> then uh, after that, uh, the Heartland Research Organization was doing some uh, side scan sonar in the river, uh, looking for a possible site where uh, the armies could have crossed. Uh, again, that was to me was extremely interesting. So I went up and. Uh, right at the very end of that. And then that was when Wayne actually took me over and showed me the temple site. Uh, that was the, the, the first time I'd seen it. Uh, then uh, um, I found out later, Wayne had let me know that they were getting some high-tech uh, instruments from Germany to do uh, uh, magnetrometer scan of the temple site. And they ended up uh, scanning like 250 acres in total. So I went up and joined that expedition, and at which time that's when I joined the Heartland Research Organization. And uh, then when uh, uh, Mike and John brought up the possibility of purchasing the, the Phoenicia, and John Lefgren and Mike LaFontaine, John right? Lefgren and Mike LaFontaine okay. brought up the possibility. Uh, but it was cut into pieces, so it was going to be, wouldn't be buying a ship, we'd be buying pieces of a ship. They asked me what I thought about it, and, uh, and then having to put it back together, and I said, it'll be fun. <laughs> so, uh, I more or less at that point volunteered to help put it together, and, uh, which, is, uh, which is exactly what happened. Okay. Now, I've had uh, some uh, experience in... Uh, uh, timber frame construction in Pennsylvania. I used to repair timber framed barns. There'd be rotten timbers in it and you'd have to remove the rotten timber without the barn falling down and, and, and work a new one in there. So I'm used to working with timbers, but uh, working on a ship is a little something new. Uh, but I, uh, I've always loved puzzles. I'm a very good puzzle solver. And uh, it's kind of like a puzzle. Uh, they, when they took the ship apart, each piece and panel was numbered, but there was no key supplied, a map, as it were, to show which piece went where. So where? So we had to we had to figure that out. But uh, I have a I have an, a background in engineering and uh, construction. I've I've worked all, all my life in various phases of construction. Uh, Commercial, industrial, concrete, electricity. I've, I've been an electrician. I've been a plumber. I've been a framer. Uh, I understand you're a Nittany Lion. Is that right? Uh, sort of. A, a what? A Nittany Lion, Penn State. 
Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you must not be a sports fan. A Nittany Lion, but uh, I was never really into college football, but I was a big Steelers fan. Oh, okay. And now I'm a Chiefs fan. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I believe that uh, everything has happened to my li- in my life, all the, uh, the different uh, aspects that I've worked on uh, has uh I was being prepared by the Lord to work on this ship. There's a lot of I, I, people. People say, "Are you a shipbuilder?" I said, "Well, I am now." Uh, there's a, a lot. Just of, like Nephi, right? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of different uh, aspects involved in there that you can't really uh, put into a cubby hole. But it takes a a, a, a wide knowledge of, of different aspects of. Uh, uh, of different construction trades. Uh, I mean, we drill holes, we use bolts, we use steel plates. Uh, some going to be some welding involved. And, and I've had experience in, in all those areas. But uh, I think one of, the, one of the biggest things is uh, the, the puzzle aspect. It really is quite a puzzle. And uh, then once you figure out how the, where the piece came from and where it needs to go, you have to figure out how to get it into that position, which sometimes is tricky because you need it to go in two directions at once and, and the, the, you need it to go over and down and movement in either direction blocks the movement in the other. So it's, it's kind of a dance to get the piece to go in. So yeah, so for people who don't know, basically the Phoenicia ship made two trips, uh, one around Africa from the Middle East all the way around Africa and then the other one was through the Mediterranean Sea, and then they went over to Florida. And so what I understand, can you tell us what happened after that so that people understand why the ship is in pieces now? And uh, Well, uh, Mike LaFontaine might be better for, okay. to answer that because he was actually there in Florida and, and saw what happened. But, but basically the ship, and Mike can fill in the details, the, the ship spent... Uh, uh, some time uh, at the bottom of the harbor in Florida. It sank because of the hurricane. And uh, when they pulled it back up out, there, there was nowhere for it to go because of COVID. And uh, no museums were interested in it at that time. Prior to COVID, COVID, there was tremendous interest. But during COVID, nobody was going to museums. The museums were not having any income, so they, they couldn't make any purchases. So the, the <laughs> the captain, yeah, so it was going to go to England the originally. The captain had to get it back to England, and the really the only way he could do it was to cut it up and put it into containers and ship it back. And uh, that's when the Heartland Research Organization stepped in and said, well, uh, don't send it to England, so let's, let's send it up well, to England. Well, half of it did go to England, right? It was, was already it? on the sea, on its way to England, but the other half was still here. Okay. So let's take the other half, instead of sending it to England, send it to Iowa, and let's get the one that's on its way to England, get, do a U-turn, and get it to come back. Okay. And so, so now you've got a ship that's been cut into pieces, and you have to put it back together. Right. And uh, that was the, we, the second half of the ship arrived first. So we have the back half of the ship. And uh, it arrived in, uh, in Montrose in a container on a snowy night when we really didn't have any way to unload it and nowhere to put it. But, but before, that, before that day was over, 
John had found a building, rented a building, and the ship was uh, a, a big crane appeared out of nowhere, literally, and we got it unloaded and into the, uh, got the container sitting right in front of that building, which then in, uh, <clears throat> subsequently we unloaded and put it in the building. And it was just a, a, a giant, like a box of Legos dumped out on the ground. And so we started sorting them out and trying to make sense of what we had and uh, trying to decipher what the numbers on them might mean. And by taking a very close examination of the individual boards, we could discern, well, the, the, the grain pattern on this board continues across onto the grain pattern on that board. So these two must have been together. So taking that little bit of information, we extrapolated then what the numbers might mean. And uh, so we were, we were able to get them figured out and sorted. And then our first job was to take the keel, which wasn't numbered, but the keel itself was cut into sections. <clears throat> but we could examine the cut and the angle it was slightly off and find the piece that matched it and get them lined out and... Uh, figure out how we could rejoin them in a, a way that would be uh, structurally sound. And uh, so once we got the, the keel laid, then we could start at the one end and figure out which piece went first. And uh, once we got that in, then it, it really started to take off. After Then, then we uh, were able to sort out each piece, and we now know exactly where each piece goes in what sequence, in what row. So we started putting it together, and we have... Uh, we're one panel shy of having half the panels that we have in our possession now reassembled. So uh, there's other work besides just putting the hull together, but as far as the hull itself, uh, we have half the keel assembled and about one-fourth of the total so hull. So the, the keel is the bottom of the boat for those of us who aren't shipbuilders, is that right? True. It's a, the keel is the, the bottom backbone of the boat. The, the Phoenicia doesn't have a, a keel board. It extends down for stability. It's basically a flat bottom boat. But the uh, timbers on the side are uh, about, about six and a half inches wide or so, uh, two inches thick. The, the keel is about the size of a railroad tie, if you can uh, picture what that would be. And the, the first the first planks attach to the heel to to the keel, and then they uh, it comes up like this. So the the keel, very solid piece of timber on the bottom, very hard, uh, but it's not uh, a tremendously deep keel. It's actually a, a shallow draft flat bottom boat, which makes the boat kind of able to rock side to side quite a bit when it's in the open ocean. So if, if a person is prone to seasickness, they probably wouldn't want to be on that, that boat. <laughs> it's very, very strong, very sturdy, but it does have a tendency to rock a little bit more than you'd probably like. <laughs> well, very good. All right. So, uh, so your main job has been to, I mean, this is kind of a three-dimensional puzzle, right? Yes. Yeah, and so uh, so you've got a background in engineering, is that right? Or, or you at least started engineering at Penn State? Yes, my uh, uh, I had a lot of engineers in my family, brothers, uncles, or a brother, and uh, a couple uncles, and, and it was always expected that, uh, that I would be a, an engineer. Uh, uh, my grades were good enough. It shouldn't have been a problem. So I attended Penn State University for two years, and... Uh, 
simply decided engineering wasn't my thing. Uh, but I did study engineering and uh, surveying. So uh, <clears throat> I decided to uh, go back out uh, uh, into the uh, constructions trades. Uh, before I went to, to school for engineering, I actually worked in construction as a young man. Uh, uh, after school evenings, uh, I worked on modular homes. There was a factory that built modular homes. I, I worked in there for a couple summers. So my, my real interest was in construction and building. And so I, I framed houses. Uh, uh, I was an electrician. I was a plumber. Um, <clears throat> I worked in a sawmill at one time, uh, and then uh, I started uh, a painting business, uh, painting buildings, uh, and then I got into uh, repairing timber frame barns, and there's a lot of old falling down barns in Pennsylvania, and at that time there was a, a lot of money from the coal, from the coal mining, and the farmers would get, would get royalties for coal taken off their land. And the first thing they wanted to do was, was fix up their old barn. So it was quite a bit of work uh, fixing up uh, uh, old timber frame barns that were ready to fall down. And I was about the only person in the western half of the state that was doing it. So I had my pick and cho choice of the jobs. And uh, that's what I had been doing uh, a couple years prior to uh, uh, moving out here. Uh, I did a stint as a... Uh, Building maintenance in town, a lot of uh, commercial buildings uh, took care of the uh, the boilers and the heating and the plumbing in these buildings. And uh, then I moved out here to Missouri and started a, uh, a house building business. I built a few houses, and, but then I switched to concrete, did nothing but concrete. Uh, first it was residential, then it was commercial. And then I uh, started working on cell phone towers. Uh, doing site work, uh, running the electrical conduit and the grounding and the, the concrete foundation for the towers. And, and my two sons were old enough for working with me. We traveled all over the, the Midwest uh, putting in cell phone tower foundations. And uh, well, then I, uh, I stopped doing that and I got tired of being away from home all the time. So we started concentrating on... Uh, uh, convenience store parking lots. My, my sons and I and guys we had working for us poured concrete parking lots. Uh, our record pour was, uh, we poured an acre of concrete one day, 60,000 60, square feet. Uh, me and uh, 14 other guys there. It was for the, the fire department there. It built a fire training facility. Uh, then I retired, and it was right about the time I retired that the uh, was when I, I started uh I had had more time, and I was able to run up to Iowa and join the uh, uh, Heartland Research Group. That uh, if I hadn't been retired, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been free to do that. So that was fortuitous uh, the timing, but uh, it's, it's the Lord's timing is perfect, and and I I truly believe that uh, that He has led me through my life's path to get me to the point where I'm now. Uh, able to be here and, and help put this, this boat back together and uh, so that this, this message of, of the contact between the old world and the new, the actual uh, positive physical trip that, that Captain Bill did uh, validates the, uh, the two, uh, two of the three migration stories that are in the Book of Mormon. And, of course, Captain Bill knew nothing about 
these these stories and wasn't he was simply trying to prove that Phoenicians had a rightful place in history and that they could have made these traps. And just coincidentally, they're two of the trips in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> Interesting. And so how far is independence from Montrose? About, about a four and a half hour trip, five, five hours if I you know stop, stop to fill up for gas. Right. So it's a, it's a little bit of a jaunt there. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's not bad. Uh, I don't mind, mind driving, you know, some like truck drivers, they drive all day, every day for a living and, and they manage. It's a, it's, it's not a bad trip. Okay. And so you're kind of the head, uh, construction engineer on, on reconstructing the ship. Right. Uh, Mike LaFontaine is, uh, actually in charge, but, uh, I probably, uh, have the, uh, the head and the understanding of, for, of what needs to be done structurally. And Mike has a lot of good ideas too, as far as wood joinery, you know, how, how, how we should attach the pieces. But as far as, uh, you know, making sure it's going to be structurally sound, mm-hmm. uh, I, have a, I have a good feel for what, what timbers do, uh, understand uh, loading tables, what, what's different spans, what kind of weight they can bear. What type of tight attachments uh, have the best strength, and and so on. So I know, and I guess this boat will never be seaworthy again, right? It's not planned to ever put it back in the water, but uh, structurally, it would be sound enough to sail. Uh, we've made no no efforts to waterproof it, but theoretically, it could be waterproofed and could be put back on the ocean. Uh, structurally, it would be capable of it. It would just be a matter of, of making sure it was all sealed up. We'd have to uh, caulk the joints. And uh, the simplest way would just be to uh, put a coat of fiberglass over the out- fiberglass mat and resin over the outside. Although and, I don't think the Phoenicians had fiberglass back then, did they? Right. They, <laughs> they didn't build their boats out of little pieces like Legos either. <laughs> so they didn't have the, have the issue of not only the horizontal joints leaking, but the vertical joints where it was cut, yeah. would be, is, is, that's the real problem. Right. So, because I did notice in there, uh, you guys are using a lot of modern tools and, and modern techniques. Um, but I guess the original ship, did they use power tools and that sort of thing to build it? Do you know? Well, it, it, as far as we know, they didn't. There's a lot of people with fringe theories about what technology they may or may not have had, but uh, it, it, it's simply a matter of methods uh, uh, and, and not design. Uh, we have to make a hole. They'd have drilled the holes by hand, and we have the, the advantage instead of ha- having to hand turn the drill, we just turn the drill with an electric motor. But we're doing the same thing. We're simply making a hole in the side of the plank. And uh, the tenons they probably made with draw knives where we'll run them through the table saw and round them over with a bell sander. But it's the exact same tenon, and uh, they would have just done everything with hand tools. It would have taken them longer. But we're not doing anything different as far as design. We're just doing the uh, 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 using the advantage of uh, uh, electrical power to turn our turn our bits and our saws, where they would have done everything by hand. Because one of the things that I think I heard in one of the videos, they believe the Phoenicians used nails, which was a brand new technology for them. 
Um, are you using modern nails or are they trying to be Phoenician nails or? Well, uh, we have, uh, we've had some, uh, uh iron hand wrought nails, uh, made that are identical to the nails they used. Uh, but, uh, a lot of the, the ribs are still attached to the planks. So we, we don't have to put the, when they cut the, the, the hull into sections, the rib section with each corresponding panel for the most part remained in place. So they're already attached. Um, <clears throat> we're, uh, we're using quite a few screws uh, instead of nails. Because uh, those will hold it tighter, basically, stronger. It'll be stronger than the, than the, uh, the grip that the Dale had. It'll be, it'll be less movement, it'll be less slippage. Uh, uh, we're trying to remain as uh, authentic as possible, uh, yet it doesn't need to be 100% uh, authentic as far as uh, the methods that are used to put it back together. It's, it's the original boards, it's the original pieces of wood that made the voyage, uh, so, uh, whenever we add a screw here and there to tighten things up or to draw things together, consider it an upgrade. Okay. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, I'm trying to think of what else is there? What else should we know about what you do on the, on the Phoenicia? Well, it's, uh, uh it's not quite as glamorous as it sounds. It's, <laughs> that's a, there's a lot of, uh, time consuming, dirty work, uh, cleaning the panels up. There's, uh, uh, <clears throat> dirt and stains and years on the ocean have, uh, kind of left the pieces, uh, on the outside of the panels. Uh, they were covered with a, uh, an anti-fouling compound to keep the, uh, barnacles from attaching, but more importantly, to keep the ship worms from eating the wood. When you put a wood, sh wood ship in the ocean, first thing that happens, there's these, there's these worms. Uh, the, the, the tiny larvae of these worms are floating around in the water and they attach to any piece of wood and they, they burrow in there and they want to make a home. So they put this coating on a wood ship uh, to prevent that. Well, as you pointed out, uh, the Phoenicians did little things a little different than we do nowadays. So in uh, order to... Uh, restore the boat and get it back more to what it would have been if it had actually had been built 600 BC. We're removing the anti-fouling compound. We're just going to take it down to the bare wood. And that is some pretty tough stuff. It's got copper in it. It's got epoxy in it. Oh. It, it doesn't just come off with paint stripper. We, uh, <laughs> a lot of, uh, we, use, we use heat and uh, scrapers and manual labor. And then once, once it's off, there's, there's still a residue. So there's a sanding involved. And on the inside, basically, we just power wash it. And that power washing does a pretty good job taking it down to the bare wood on the inside. So about 40 hours worth of labor to get one section ready. So that's, that's where volunteers are, are, are very helpful. We have a lot of people coming up and volunteering, and uh, they help clean the panels. To take one panel and attach it to the ship, only takes about an hour for the initial attachment, and then that's followed up with maybe another hour of actually uh, securing it and, and, and reinstoring, re restoring the structural integrity of that piece against the next one. So uh, most of the time is in prep work, 
and and we have uh and moving the pieces around inside the shop they're kind of heavy yeah but um and so the the hull is basically almost done right now is that is that correct we have uh right now we have one half of the ship in montrose and uh, it's, oh, actually, it's, the, it's the back half of the ship. Uh, of, of that half of the ship, we have the entire keel section put together, except for one piece on the very back end that goes way up high. We're going to save that for last. Okay. Once that gets on there, it's going to be hard to move the ship. Uh, I don't think it would fit out the door with that piece installed. The door's only 20 foot high, and that piece sticks up higher than that. But our, the ceiling in the building's high enough to do it now of the panels we have we are one panel short of having half the panels installed of of the half ship we have so if you do the math that's one fourth of the hull half half the keel and one fourth of the hull has been installed Uh, then after that's together the quite a bit of the railing which is the very uppermost uh, row that we'll be working on. Quite a bit of that railing is going to have to be replaced due to uh, rot. So even though we have a fourth of the hull done and half the keel, we're not as far along as that would make it sound. There's a lot of ancillary work. We're going to have to put the lower deck in. We're going to, we're going to have to put the upper deck in. We're going to, and we have to. We we don't have the deck. The deck the deck will be a, com, uh, a complete reproduction. We're, we've located some cedar in uh, in Iowa that we'll be using for the deck boards. Not and, the cedars of Lebanon, huh? <laughs> no, it won't be the cedars of Lebanon, but it will be cedar. And uh, and we don't have the sail built yet. We don't have the mast. So we're we're, we're not as far along as uh, initially you'd think with those numbers that I gave you. There's still quite a bit quite a bit of other other work involved. How long do you anticipate this will take to rebuild the whole ship? There's a lot of variable there. Uh, exactly, you know how much how many volunteers we get, how much how much how many hours per week we're able to put in. Uh, Say estimate was run anywhere from uh, three to five years. Three to five years it'll take. Oh wow, this is a big project. So if people want to volunteer, how do they volunteer? Uh, contact the Heartland Research Group. Okay. Uh, there, uh, there's Phoenicia Rocks. Phoenicia Rocks. That's the website. Yeah. So not dot com. It's dot rocks. <laughs> yes, that's correct. And then, uh, and then they can just sign in to volunteer there for... They get all, all sorts of contact information right there. Okay. And, of course, you can see videos at that website and everything. Yes. Anything else we should know about that? I guess there's a gift, a gift store there as well. Uh, the, uh, the building that it's in uh, doesn't have an official name. Uh, we call it the Phoenician Museum or the Phoenicia Shop. And inside the shop, there's uh, an area that's been uh, set up... Uh, a little, it's actually a tent that makes a little room that there's the gift shop and uh, there's the information in there. There's a, a, a video that you can watch of, of Captain Beale making a trip with a big screen TV in there. You can sit down, you can see the presentation. It kind of fills you in about the whole project from start to finish. And uh, we have a, even uh, if someone would like, we've got little pieces of the uh, of the old tenons that we took out. See, when they, when they cut the ship in half, they cut the 
horizontally, they cut the tenon in half. This is totally uh, of no use to put the ship back together. So we pull, we pull half the tenon out of the top panel and half the tenon out of the bottom panel and the two pegs that were holding it together, and, and we really can't use them in a restoration ship. We've made new tenons. We've we got some English walnut, which is what the, or Mediterranean walnut, uh, was what the original tenons were made out of, and we replicated the tenons' ex exact size and shape. So we have the new tenons. Well, the old ones, uh, uh, you, you can you can purchase those there at the gift shop if you want a souvenir of the ship. Uh, but people that come up there, they they love to come in there and, and touch it, put their hand on it, and, and feel the this is this is a a very visceral, uh, solid, big, uh, as far as we're concerned, artifact uh, from the Book of Mormon times. Even though it was built in modern times. It's it's a, a, a replica of the ship that brought uh, young Prince Mulek to the New World. So when you're touching that ship, you're you're touching the spirit of that trip, and it, it makes that trip real. This this isn't the ship he came on, but this is this is just what it looked like. This is the exact same type of ship. This is, this is a model, this is a recreation of that ship that he would have came over on. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, I think I'm out of questions. Is there anything we're missing? What, what am I missing? My, my wife, she says, well, I don't need, you know, physical evidence to believe in the Book of Mormon. I believe it's true. And that's excellent if a person can be like that. But uh, in the New Testament, when Christ would appear to his disciples, he would say, come, come here. She says, I want you to touch my, the prince in my hands, I want you to thrust your hand in my side. They already had faith. They believed in the Savior. They believed in Jesus. And now he's standing before them resurrected. Your, your faith can't get any greater than that. Yet he knew the mind, faith exists. But we do have a physicality to us. We do have a physical body. He says, not only do I want you to have faith in me, I want you to come here. I says, I want you to touch me. Physically, I want you to have physical proof as well. So the Lord himself wanted us to have physical proof. So we now have something that you can come and touch, a very real, a very physical object. All right. Well, Mike Stoneman, what do we call you, Chief Engineer of the Phoenicia? Is that what we should call you? <laughs> <laughs> they call me the homeless guy. The homeless guy. <laughs> I'm not going to put that on there. <laughs> we'll call you uh, the chief engineer. You're the Scotty of the uh, of the Phoenicia, right? Yeah, that would yeah, that would be apt. Give me a captain. I'm giving her all she's got. <laughs> I'm giving her all she's got, Captain. It's going to take at least an hour to get it fixed, <laughs> but I'll have it done in five minutes. And you'll get the dilithium crystals, and we'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Well, Mike Stoneman, thank you for, so much for being here on Gospel Tangents. Really appreciate it. Okay. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Mike Stallman. Mike, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with us. And I'm excited to come out to the Iowa Museum and check out the Phoenicia and see all your handiwork. In our next conversation, I'm excited to introduce David Hawking. He's written some annotated scriptures like the New Testament here. And uh, so we're going to learn a little bit more about him and the amazing scriptures that he's put together. These are pretty cool.
And so in 1867, the reorganized church published it. And so this is in the public domain, the text. And so I went ahead and um, felt that that would be important. We, uh, as members of the Utah Mormon Church, if you want to call it that, we've never had the full benefit of everything that Joseph Smith did by way of commandment. And because of that, I felt that since next year would be Come Follow Me in the New Testament, what better opportunity for we as church members to actually read what Joseph Smith contributed. So this is my latest book. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.